Amen. Well, good morning. It is great to see all of you here this morning. Um, a special welcome to those of you who uh, made your way to the Reading Memorial High School for the first time to join us for services, and uh, and you made your way back here to our home, our house on Sundays and throughout the week. Uh, we are glad that you've come, and uh, we pray that God would just meet you here and that you'd experience the warmth and goodness of the community and the fellowship that we've experienced together as a church. I've been thinking a lot about holidays this week, uh, primarily because we just came out of Easter, as all of you are aware. Um, but I've also been thinking about Christmas. So bear with me for just a moment as I flesh this out a bit. Someone once told me that there is nothing as over as the day after Christmas. And ever since I heard that a few years ago, I've discovered how true that really is. I mean, there is nothing as over as the day after Christmas. Have you ever noticed it? We spend months of our lives readying ourselves for Christmas Day, don't we? I mean, the amount of effort and expectation that we set for little kids, all the, the lights that we put on the house and the caroling that we hear months in and months out, uh, by the time it's near time for, for Christmas to come, it, it looms like this mountain on the horizon just weeks out. And then we come to the day. And the day of Christmas is just a blur, a flurry of activity. Um, there's uh, the opening of gifts and the, the traveling to family and the meals that we prepare and the meals that we eat and the meals that we prepare and the meals that we eat and so on and so forth all day long until at last at the end of the day we all collapse in a heap, exhausted uh, for all of the plans and preparations that have happened. And I'm always amazed that after Christmas, the day after it's like, boom, it is over. Like you look at each other and say, well, that's done. I, I, it's incredible to me how quickly uh, these days uh, Christmas trees end up uh, at the end of the driveway. Uh, it seems like just a day or two afterwards. I mean, just a few days ago, the, the tree was this glowing, beautiful thing in the middle of the living room, sort of the, the centerpiece casting a warm glow. And then the next day, it gets stripped naked and rolled out to the curb for, for some, you know, moment, inglorious moment when a, a trash guy tosses it into the back of the truck. There is nothing as over as the day after Christmas. Where are you going, Tom? Christmas. Can I say this? If, if it is true that there is nothing as over as the day after Christmas, then it is equally true, this, that there is nothing as begun as the day after Easter. There is nothing as begun as the day after Easter. Because while Christmas feels to us like the crossing of a finish line, Easter feels to us like the beginning, the starting gate to something new. Easter comes and goes, and on the other side, what do we find ourselves in? We find ourselves in this glorious place where, where, where life is starting to take off. I mean, we, we find ourselves in the beautiful months of April, and May and June is just around the corner. Now that's a good starting point. Uh, we look around and we see signs of life just blossoming everywhere, uh, apart from yesterday's cold and raw. But if there's nothing as over as the day after Christmas, there's nothing as begun as the day after Easter. And, and I think about how appropriate is that? Because the truth is, nothing was as begun as the day after Jesus rose from the dead. Nothing was begun as the day after the resurrection. Because the resurrection of Jesus announced to the whole world 
that something new was afoot. There was a new thing that was starting. Life was bursting forth even in the face of death. That new creation itself was underway. Something new was happening. And it was a remarkable departure from what had gone before. I, I wonder if you know what it is that launched the Christian movement. Can I tell you, it wasn't, Christ, it wasn't Christmas. It wasn't the story narrative about Jesus' birth that the apostles went and told everyone about. No. What launched the Christian movement was the reality of the risen Christ and the power of the resurrection. When Jesus' early followers went and told everyone about the Messiah, it was the resurrection they pointed to. Acts chapter 4, verse 33 says, With great power the apostles continued to testify to the what? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all. And so it was this undeniable reality of, of Christ's resurrected body that the witnesses had seen and it started spreading the word about that, that began this movement that grew from this tiny seedling of a, of a small group of Jewish followers to what now we know as the global church, the church around the world of, of Christ's followers. Because nothing is as begun as the day after the resurrection. So this morning before next week, when we launch into uh, when we launch into a new series, and I'm looking forward to that, I'd just like us to linger a bit on the resurrection and to think about its implications. Because if this is true, then it must mean something for us. Like, if Easter is what we say it is, then it must be more than just a holiday that we celebrate once a year. The resurrection must have implications for our daily life and for our daily living. And that's the question I'd like each of us to consider this morning. It's the simple question. Has Easter started something in you? Has the resurrection of Jesus changed the way you experience life? Or is it just a holiday that you celebrate once a year? Well, with that question in mind, I'd like to turn to 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, where we're going to flesh it out a bit more. Now, this passage, uh, admittedly, is not a traditional Easter Resurrection Sunday or even Sunday after uh, passage, uh, but it does have some profound truths that begin to emerge that are directly linked to the truth of the resurrection. Um, it's a letter that's written to a young uh, leader named Timothy, who is a young pastor of one of the early uh, local churches, and it's written by Paul, who is uh, a towering figure, in the early Christian movement. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy, his young protege. Hear the words. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of the many witnesses. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they might take hold of life that is truly life. Now twice here, Paul references the word life, the idea that there is this life. He said, he says, take hold of the eternal life right at the beginning of that passage. 
And then he says, take hold of this life that is truly life. Now, it seems what Paul is telling Timothy is that there is this kind of life, this kind of existence that opens up uh, as a result of something that Christ has done and can be experienced by people who, who put their trust and their faith in God through Christ. And so the implication then is that, that there are probably a lot of people who have not yet accessed this life that is truly life, this eternal life. And they must be living a different kind of life. And I wonder if you've ever experienced that. Experienced not a life that feels vital and eternal, but living a life that just seems to be making its way from one week to the next to the next. I actually believe there are a lot of people in this world, and, and there have been seasons in my own life where where we just simply make our way through through life by just going through the motions. Uh, many of us look at our calendars and say, How, what do we need to do to make it through tomorrow? This doesn't feel the vital life that Paul is talking about. Some feel like they're wading through the fog or, or, or just living life as, as drudgery. Others are just desperately searching for some kind of meaning to, to it all. And then, of course, still others are aspiring to a kind of dream that has been laid out there for them. A dream they're trying to shape, that they, they want to shape their life, that they might aspire to. Um, and of course, in the midst of that, uh, sometimes you feel like you're living that dream, but oftentimes you feel like you're slipping and that dream is slipping away from you. A few weeks ago, I made my way to a, a pastor's conference in, uh, in Southern California, Irvine, California. Yeah, tough place to go. Um, now, if you've been to Southern California, you know what a beautiful place that is. Uh, we were uh, just south of L.A. And uh, while I was there, um, New England was getting hit with its last uh, you know, batch of nor'easter snow that made its way up on, uh, on April Fool's Day. So as I was sitting uh, in the evening looking at the Pacific and the sun setting over the Pacific, I was thinking of my family, you know, hunkering down, one last time, wondering who's going to clear the driveway and all of that. Um, but Southern California culture, and L.A. specifically, is, is the hub of a particular kind of dream that people aspire to. Um, the recent Academy Award-winning film, La La Land, sort of bought, brought to the big screen this dream in full color and song, Right? Uh, these aspirations that, that fuel this culture of this broad city, this dream that drives people's lives there is the dream of making a name for yourself, of making it big, fame and, uh, and, and being known. So I, I visited all the iconic spots that are intended to put a fine point on this dream for anyone who comes to take a look. Uh, I made my way to, uh, to the Hollywood Boulevard and saw the stars on the sidewalk. Uh, I looked up at the uh, Hollywood Hills uh, next to the sign and saw all the mansions up on the hillside. I drove through Beverly Hills and saw the mansions of the stars, and uh, and I strolled down Rodeo Drive for a bit. Uh, honestly, I was at a pastor's conference. I just want you to know that I took a few <laughs> liberties with some of the time. But can I tell you, when I when I was out there, I started to feel something happen to me internally that I was really wrestling with. Um, I started to, first of all, I saw the youth, youthfulness of everyone around me. Like everybody in Southern California is young and beautiful. 
And I started to feel a little self-conscious about my gray hair for the first time maybe in my life. Uh, I saw all the markers of fashion when I was walking down Rodeo Drive and I, I started to look down and saw my cargo shorts and I thought, what? <laughs> Who dressed you this morning? I honestly almost took a selfie so that I could share this with you. But I was too self-conscious to even do that. <laughs> I, uh, I looked up at the huge mansions on, on the Hollywood Hills, and I thought, oh, what must it like to be like to live in that place, to experience the, the pleasure, the luxury, the, the, the leisure, all of it, and the parties. What must it be like? And so I find myself, I found myself in that moment sort of measuring my life against this, this different yardstick this different metric, a new way of realizing that maybe I had missed my chance to live this kind of life. And I walked away wrestling with that a little bit, knowing that what I'd just seen was a dream, but knowing that it's dreams that drive people's lives. You know, I know it sounds silly, but I realized in that moment too that, that I would uh, not only never live up to the Southern California um, dream that was on display before me, but I realized that I was getting older, that more dreams that there are out there, more visions of life were slipping through my fingers, and I knew I could never get them back. And the fact is, every culture, every city, every part of the world and, uh, has a different take on living the dream that gets held up for people to sort of embrace. In Washington, D.C., it seems like the, that dream is power. It's about power. In Boston, it feels like that dream is about education and degrees and, uh, and learning, maybe some finance. New York City, it is about finance and art and fashion. In L.A. and Atlanta, it's about youthfulness and entertainment and all of that. In Vegas, it's pleasure. In Nashville, it's music. And all of us find ourselves trying to figure out which dream we're comparing our lives to. Every one of these centers has a dream. And every one of these dreams has a system. And every one of these systems has a ladder for people to begin to climb. And it is this that people think is the life that truly is life. But we know that sometimes when you get to the top, you discover that the top isn't where you want it to be when you started. That maybe the ladder was leaning against the wrong thing. Or maybe you can't get to the top and you think that's why life is unsatisfying for you. Because you know that you're moving backwards, maybe. It turns out that you can actually be rich in this world, uh, putting all your hope in all these kinds of things like money and fame, family, success, marriage, love, fitness, and actually miss out on the kind of life that Jesus resurrection makes possible the life that truly is life so here's the conventional thinking about these things the conventional thinking is that this is your life right here over here you are born right over here you die. This is going to be uplifting, I promise. <laughs> and in between here and here, what do we have? 
in between here and here, I'm going to be generous. We have 85 years, right? Amen? <laughs> We've got about 85 years, maybe 100. Um, and, and the reality is, most of us think this is where life happens. This is where life gets lived. And the problem is, we all know that when we're born, that our life is not a straight shot trajectory upward. We all know the reality that life has its peak and it has its plateau and then it has its decline, right? We don't know where those peaks are. We don't know where those plateaus are. We don't know where the declines are. I like to think that the peak is about 75, you know. Tom Brady helps make us think it might be possible that that peak lasts longer than, than it actually does. But we look at this and, and then here's the trouble. If we believe that this conventional thinking about life is what life is all about, then we find ourselves fretting, anxious, worried that, that, that the life that we are to live, that we are intended to live, might be passing us by. And here's what happens in midlife. Midlife people have what we call a midlife crisis because people are afraid that life is slipping through their fingers. That, that maybe the ladder was put on the wrong dream. Maybe we better work hard and shift it to the other side to, to start something else or something new. And we find ourselves caught with a, with a brevity of time and just a bevy of aspirations. A brevity of time and a bevy of aspirations. What does that lead to? It leads to a couch in a psychologist's office somewhere where our anxieties begin to show and take over. It comes from the realization that death is the marking point of the end. This looming vision of our mortality starts to seep into our consciousness. And sometimes it's there and we don't even realize it. We don't know what's driving our anxieties, our fears, our discouragement. There's something about death that traps you. Remember, two weeks ago, Jairus said that. Death catches us by surprise and it won't let go. And sometimes death has power over us even when we're not particularly thinking about it. Death is at the heart of all our fears, our disappointments, our doubts. It drives us in circles. It fuels our anxiety. And it makes us lose sight of the life that is truly life. Well, what does all of this have to do with Easter? I would say everything. Everything. Because if there is nothing else that Easter assures us of, it is that death is not the end. And that the grave does not mark the end of our days. As a matter of fact, conventional, a conventional view of life gets flipped on its head. And we start to realize that this is more the true story. That life is like that, even shorter than we might imagine. But it's okay, because death is not the end and final. But death marks the beginning to something yet to come. There is nothing as begun as the day after the resurrection. So, what do we do about this truth, this reality? How do we face this truth, and how do we change this our outlook in terms of our lives. I love what Paul tells Timothy in this passage. Twice he says it. Paul tells Timothy twice to take 
hold of this life, of eternal life, of the life that truly is life. Now, the Greek word that he uses there twice is uh, epilambanomai. Epilambanomai. Just say it with me for a minute. Epilambanomai. I don't know why my voice does that when I say that word. But it means to aggressively take, to seize upon with great personal initiative that matches the seizing. Like, get at it. Epilambanomai. That kind of life. The, the, the picture that came to my mind was, uh, some of you know that Van Antwerps were uh, chicken herders for uh, a couple of years. Uh, the chickens, uh, may they rest in peace, uh, <laughs> came to an early demise in the middle of the night. Um, that's another story. But, but you can't just pick up a chicken. Like if the chickens get out of the coop, you can't pick up a chicken, right, Valdis? You have to epilambanomai a chicken. Like you can't just bend over. You have to, you, you got to move fast and deliberately to pick up a chicken to get it back into the coop. And that's what Paul is telling Timothy. Epilambanomai, this kind of life. Seize hold of it. Take action that is equal to the seizing. Move in. And and here's the thing. Oftentimes, resurrection sermons are spoken at someone's funeral. But Paul is telling Timothy, this young pastor, to tell probably his young congregation to seize and take hold the life that is truly life, the life that is made possible if we understand that death is not the end. Whoa! That changes everything, doesn't it? That's my brother Tim back there. So here, we start to say, how important are these small dreams that dominate our life, our thinking, our energy? And we start saying, how do we seize epilambanomai, the life that is truly life? Two suggestions, and then we're going home. The first is divest. Divest yourself from the life that isn't life. Let go of some of those things. Start giving them away. You see, Paul is telling Timothy, help people detach themselves from the power of these lesser dreams, these lesser hopes, especially the ones that find fulfillment only in the short part of our life, in this life. Help people divest themselves from those things. Be active in finding ways to counter the hold that the conventional narrative of life has over your life, your mood, your energy, your time, your precious days. Find ways to drain it of its energy and its power. Now let me be clear, generally speaking, none of these dreams of life are actually bad things in and of itself. It's not bad to, to have wealth. It's not bad to have power. It's not bad to have fame or success. As a matter of fact, some of those lesser dreams can help give shape to our days, help define who we are because we are all made differently in the image of God. 
But the problem comes is when they take on too much power in our lives and when we think our lives are all about that. Because then they become dominating forces that rival the voice of God in our lives, the presence of him. So don't let these little things become the main thing. Paul says to Timothy something very interesting about this divestment. He says, command those who are rich in this present world, which isn't a bad thing, not to be arrogant or to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who, by the way, richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. What an amazingly loving God who does that. He cares about our enjoyment. We think that life with God is about saying no to all pleasure and joy. Not so. But here's what he says about this divestment. He says, command those, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, deeds and to be generous and willing to share. Do you see what God is saying here is that richness in this present world isn't a bad thing, but you know how to make sure that you're divesting appropriately? Give it away. Let your dream and some of the gains from your dream go so that you make sure you are not living for that. As a matter of fact, use that to sow back in to the people that God loves who may just need some of what you have. Um, so he says, if you have power, maybe use your power for those who aren't in power. If you have wealth, use it for kingdom purposes or use it for, for people who are in poverty, for the needs of others. If you have position, use it for the good of those under your care. If you have a house or a home, open it up and be hospitable with it. Be generous and willing to share. You see, just like God has done for us, divest yourself from the power of the world, of the life that isn't life. And then the second thing that he says, the second way that we epilambatomai life is we invest. We invest in the life that truly is. We invest in the life that truly is. And what that often means is that we stop and ask ourselves the question before we extend energy in the day and say, is what I'm doing now going to be taken beyond my grave and last into eternity? You know, some people don't like to talk about, uh, about eternity too much because it, it seems to, 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 set aside the importance of this life. I actually think that this life becomes more rich and full if we look at it in light of eternity. Like that changes everything. So now you start to say, how can I invest in this part of my life right here? Like what seeds can I sow over here that will grow and multiply into here? I love Pastor Brian's uh, illustration from... Um, Ann Voskamp last Sunday and wrote a book uh, and in it she used an illustration about her daughter who asked her how many days do we have to live and Ann did some calculation and she came up with uh, with the number 25,550 and to show her daughter how long that life was she she took four cups of of grain of wheat and put it in a little jar do we have that image um, and she said each little seed represents a day. And so the point of it was that each day we have something to invest and we have a seed to plant. And my question 
uh, for us is what are those seeds that we're planting? That if we plant them here, actually matter over here. That they bear fruit both in our lives, in the life of our community, in the life of the good of the world. Because God isn't doing away with creation once we die and once the resurrection takes place. He's allowing creation to sprout from what has uh, what has passed away. He's recreating. He's creating new creation out of the old. But he said there's a way that we can store up in heaven, lay up in heaven treasures for ourselves and for others. So the question is, what are the seeds that we plant today that make a difference for eternity? And some of those seeds are very simple. Maybe it's simply making a commitment to sitting with God on a regular basis, that we're going to be as faithful and committed to to nurturing a relationship with God as we are to keeping our body healthy and heading to the gym, or whatever it is. Maybe the seed is, is simply reaching out and sharing faith with a friend, something as simple as that, that can be planted, that could, could turn into fruit, fruit that is eternal. Maybe the seed is that you plant one day is, is coming out with us on Saturday in two weeks and just meeting in the lobby and fanning out all over Wilmington and Reading and meeting simple needs of people around us so that they know there's a church in town that, that loves them, that cares, that wants to invest in the community, believes that God has a heart for that. But sometimes those seeds feel costly. Sometimes it feels like when we plant the seed, we're putting to death a dream. And maybe we are. Maybe we need to put to death a dominating dream that is sucking all the air out of the room of our life. Leaving no space for God to breathe. Leaving no space for others to flourish. Maybe that dream is a death to something. Maybe it, it happens when God asks you to say, notice something or to let go of something, uh, an addiction or a, a habit or a favorite go-to coping mechanism. Maybe he's saying, lay up for yourself a treasure in heaven by saying no to something now that opens the possibility of all kinds of better yeses in this life that make a difference for the life to come. So as you head out this, this morning, I hope that you imagine the life that truly is life. And I hope that you recognize the seeds in your pocket and in your hand that you can sow. And maybe you're here this morning and the seed that needs to be sown is the death to self and pride and doubt and fear that would say yes to the power of God who is at work in this world not through an Easter Sunday where everybody's happy and wearing nice dresses and clothes and what have you, but every day of the reality of our lives where we can experience not just life, but the life that is truly life. Maybe you came in this morning not really ready to be brought face to face with the reality of eternity and life and finality and all of that. But maybe God's been doing a work in your heart this morning. And you know it's time for you to plant that seed of faith, to say yes to the resurrection, 
to say yes to Christ, to say yes to God at work in the world and in your life, maybe for the first time. If that's you, then let me remind you that there is nothing has begun as the day after the resurrection. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your amazing goodness. We thank you, God, that that the resurrection of Christ is not just a historic reality that happened back then and, and that we just remember from time to time. But we thank you that the resurrection of Jesus is a present reality that literally transforms the way we go about living our days. God, I pray that you would bring us to the place where our fears would be lifted, where our striving would be subdued, where our anxious hearts would be satisfied, knowing that the things that we experience in this life are just a foretaste of the things to come. And there are things in this life that suppress and squelch the living of the life that is truly life that you offer for us through the power of the resurrection. So God, help us to be people of hope. Help us to be people who understand that there is nothing has begun as the day after the resurrection. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.